Mike, do you realize this is the very first time we've been together in my country? Do you realize I haven't kissed you in over an hour? Welcome back to the Contiki Podcast, the place to check in and get double feature film recommendations from some of your favorite artists, musicians, and filmmakers. My name is Eric Mahoney, and I will be your host. Welcome back. It's been an interesting couple of weeks here in the United States of America with the uh, apparent regime change, which is um, which I am feeling somewhat optimistic about. I mean, obviously, we have a plethora of issues to deal with in this country. But for all intents and purposes, it does look like this clown will be ousted. We'll see how that quote-unquote transition goes. Um, but, you know, hey, I, I am thankful that we're not sitting here right now with a, uh, a different situation. And then we're not back where we were uh, four years ago. So that feels good. Any little glimmer of hope right now I will cling on to for dear life feels good. On the program today... Really excited, Mick Harvey of The Birthday Party and Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. He is a founding member of both of those bands, which are really, really deeply important uh, to me, as, uh, as well as a whole lot of other people around the globe. Um, Mick is a phenomenal composer, musician. Um, he's also collaborated with the likes of PJ Harvey. And uh, just an all-around really exceptional and uh, creative dude. I had a really good time uh, speaking with Mick. And frankly, uh, I have to say, this is one of the more well-thought-out and kind of academic, almost, takes on a double feature here. Um, you know, Mick provides a lot of really good and quality um, historical perspective around his two films. I think the connectivity between the two of them is really great. And uh, his sense for, for film and the arts is um, quite elevated, and, and it was a great conversation. I think you guys are really going to dig this one, uh, especially movie buffs um, in particular will appreciate Mick's take on, uh, on these two films. So without further ado, let's uh, launch on into my conversation with musician Mick Harvey. And we're rolling. Okay. All right. Great. So, how are you, man? Uh, what, what's what's been going on? Have you have you been in in Australia uh, for most of the year here? Kind of hunker down, or what? Do, where have you been? Uh, well, yeah, we began. Uh, we were doing some shows in Europe back in. Well, when was that? Uh, late January, early February. Mm-hmm. We were doing the the shows, the songs of Roland S. Howe, like the Pop Crimes. It's called Pop Crimes, mm-hmm. and um, that uh, we were so played in Paris and another show in France, and then we finished. You know, so we finished up in in London around the twelfth of February, when actually the the virus was already out there, and the the British were relatively unaware of the level that it was already infiltrating, as happened in a few places. Uh, and kind of came home in the middle of February and have been here ever since. 
Wow. Wow. So, you know, a lot of, a lot of people are in that situation. They're just, um, uh, I know people who are, I'm at, I'm at home, so that's okay. I've, I've got my home studio here, my family and plenty to do. And I, I came back to Melbourne with an open calendar. There was nothing in my calendar diary at all for the year, which is, um, quite remarkable because that, that hasn't happened since, you know, so I don't know when. It's been a long time. Maybe sometime in 80, uh, in, sorry, not 80, nothing nothing was open in, 90, in the 1980s. Maybe 98 might have had some situation like that. But um, and 83 maybe for a couple of months after the birthday party broke up. But uh, aside from that, that's been a long, long time. You know, there was nothing for the whole year ahead. So uh, I've just been here unable to really book anything else or go anywhere. So I've just uh, started a whole bunch of new projects, I suppose. Um, I was planning to be writing my memoirs anyway, so I've been getting on with that, whatever that means. Oh, good. Um, which is yeah. good, good to get. I mean, it's mostly, uh, yeah, it's a lot of, uh, you know, thoughts and different anecdotes and stuff like that. I'll see what I want to make out of it. But it's good to get it written down anyway. It's interesting because it's all just... So much of it's just stuff that's in my head. Uh, I realise, you know, I should probably write it down. Well, it's a good excuse right now to do it. I mean, that's certainly true. Well, listen, I've been a big fan of your music for many, many years, um, so I thought I'd reach out. Um, but I don't know much about uh, your, your 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 love of film. Uh, is that something that, that uh, I, I can only assume that, that that's something that uh, speaks to you quite a bit, just from your, your history? Well, yes, I, I, I suppose I maybe came to came to film quite late in a way. I mean, as, as most people, when I was a teenager, I would see films, you know, you'd see films on the television, you'd go out to the cinema to see blockbusters or whatever was out there. Um, and really, I suppose, uh, yeah, when did I come? I came to film watching the late night movies in Melbourne. Mm-hmm. They used to have the... Uh, the late show and the late late movie and then the late 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 movie and uh, being a complete insomniac and a musician and so forth then eventually I, I was just up until five in the morning watching uh, watching the late 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 movie until the samurai came on and then Dan- danger man and then you know whatever so <laughs> I'd just be up till six o'clock but Fortunately, in the late 70s, there was someone programming the movies at Channel 9 in Melbourne who just picked fantastic movies. And actually, in fact, one of the movies I've chosen for my double feature was one of them was Touch of Evil. And I saw that movie probably about three times across those couple of years. Um, very often missing the famous beginning. And, uh, and as I'd come to it late and they used to fail to put any, uh, what would you call that, signage up when they came back from ad breaks. I, I very For quite a while I didn't know what the movie was called. So uh, um, I eventually figured that out, of course. But uh, they, they, they just used to be fantastic movies on there. So it was quite an education in itself. And um, then when we moved to London with the birthday party in 1980. I think it's notorious that everybody had an awful, awful time there. 
uh, because the lifestyle, you know, the quality of life and nobody had any money and all this sort of stuff. Where I actually had a, a, quite an enjoyable time and just started going to the movies because in, in London at that time, certainly through the 80s, there used to be repertory cinemas everywhere and there was the, you know, the British Film Institute ran on the South Bank and there were just... There, there was every week there were just um, there was a quick education in the history of uh, cinema really, and uh, just did that. That was one of the main things I did when I was in London. Went and caught up with bands, tried to see as many bands as I could to understand whether they were any good, which was debatable a lot of the time, and uh, went out to see all these films, which was the kind of classic canon of what is considered to be the great movies you know, which was important because a lot of them I I had no real knowledge of a lot of these, you know, French and French movies from the 50s and 60s and the new wave and the German stuff from whenever and, you know, and all the Italian neo-realist stuff and old early, you know, Russian revolutionary films from the 20s and 30s. I didn't really know any of this stuff. So that was that was great. To catch up with all that and learn about that. Yeah, that's like that's like your own your own private film school there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, in a, in a little way. Yeah, so it was kind of that was a real education, and that's kind of when my love of of film began to be a more of a, a focused thing, where I was you know enthused about what I was seeing. Well, let's let's back up for just a hair because you mentioned one of the films that you're going to be picking today. Um, what what is your uh, double feature recommendation for the purposes of this show, and then we can discuss a little bit. Yeah, sure. No, you you guide me through how you want to present this. Okay, so yeah, well, Touch of Evil by Orson Welles is probably a film that for many many years I just would have said was my favorite film, and that's unusual for me because I don't normally deal in favourites. Mm-hmm. People very often ask me in interviews, especially now that I'm, you know, approaching my dotage, you know, <laughs> so what's your favourite blah, blah, blah of this that you did? And my my response really is uh, it's a bit nonplussed, to be honest. I, I really don't think in those terms. So yeah. um, especially about my own work, it's very, very difficult to be objective about it. And, yeah, it, it's just maybe it's objectivity or it's also just that it's so so personal and close, uh, and that and I don't, I suppose that sounds like the same thing, but it's um, no, I, I kind of mean that in a slightly different way. Yeah, very difficult to choose favourites, but uh, Touch of Evil was always a. I would have cited it as my favourite movie for a long time. Interesting, and then and then what would you pair that with? Um, well, and I, I've paired that with a Kurosawa film, and. Uh, I chose, even though it's not my favourite Kurosawa film, um, I chose Rashomon and there's a number of reasons for that. Mm-hmm. I think um, primarily I wanted, I, you know, you asked me to, to choose a double feature so I thought, okay, you're doing a double feature. You don't want people to have to sit through two really lengthy epics in a row. You want to make a nice program with a digestible, <laughs> digestible pieces and both the films uh, neither of them are even two hours I don't think from memory Rashomon's only about 90 minutes and even the director's cut of Touch of Evil's only about 105 or something so um, I was very thoughtful of you yeah well I mean this is this is something that Orson (laughs) felt too he didn't understand these long movies 
He, uh, yeah, I've seen, yeah. a, very f- I'm, I'm with seen that. a very funny interview with him where he was talking about this and saying, people think I make really slow, you know, incredibly long movies. And he said, I don't. My films are really fast and they're not really long. I think uh, maybe The Magnificent Ambersons was going to be really long and but it ended up not being really long because it was taken off him. But his movies aren't really long. They're usually only 90 to 100 minutes and... Uh, Right, you know, right. people treat him like he's some wallowing arty director, and he's really not like that at all. His movies are really quite pacey. So um, I, I chose those for for that reason to present a couple of uh, great movies from. I've realised what for me is the great era, the uh, the post war era up to the late fifties. Yeah, nineteen fifties, pairing. I like that. I think there were so many amazing films made during that time and before the indulgences and the freedoms of the 60s and I'm not sure why that is but I think there's there's something in the post-World War reflections that are going on there about moralities and the human condition and, you know, what it all means and where it all went wrong and just trying to make sense of all the horrible things that had happened in the previous decades and uh, it brought forth a lot of really, really interesting material and uh, radical thinking, really, radical approaches to to what people are trying to say in their films, but the messages they're trying to put out there were much uh, less frivolous and less just about... You know, you know, sort of entertainment and distraction, diversion. There were kind of so many of the films being made during that era were about something uh, stronger, stronger ideas and searching for truths and so forth. Yeah, and much darker as well, as you mentioned. Yeah, I agree with you. You also brought up the um, the opening sequence to Touch of Evil, which I think is a, a really good thing to kind of speak about for a minute. I, I, I've always been really taken with that it's basically i think it's about four four minutes long four or five minutes long but it's one shot um and it's it's really it's really artfully um choreographed um where it kind of gives you the backstory of the action that that kind of spawns the rest of the of the story um and um i i I love those kind of shots in particular i'm always taken with them um you know, like Hitchcock's rope, for instance, uh, I thought was was really brilliant. Just just on the on the fact that it was one shot. You it's know, all, um, it's always really interesting when people do something like that technically. But I mean, for me, what's more interesting about that whole scene is how effective it is. So yes, people talk about the openings that opening scene a lot, and um, the music in it's really fantastic. The entire and it tells a whole. It tells everything you need to know about the beginning. That's right. And the the funny thing is, of course, that so many people, when you start watching a movie, you're quite often not focused in yet. It's almost like reading, you know, the way you read a first page of a book and there's already four name, four character names and you're already confused and you haven't got anywhere to put them yet. Right, right. And yeah, so it's, it's really hard to process all that initial information. Um, and go, oh, who's saying what to who? And, you know, it's, it's, and it's a bit like that in that opening scene. The guy's there who plants the bomb, but you're not picking up on all of that yet. You're just watching this thing abstractly 
like, oh, it's the title sequence or something. And in fact, yeah. there's so much information in that opening shot. It's really brilliant. So It is, it is. And there's another piece in, 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 in the film, I think, that's even much, much longer that's one shot that's about 10 or 12 minutes um, that's sort of buried in there that, that, that you kind of you kind of you kind of miss because it's just you, you just don't pick up on it. But um, oh, is there? Okay. I, I, well, that's that's right. I mean, the thing is that, it, that that's made to work so well that you know, I, I, yeah, I, I, I find the substance of the movie really much more interesting too than just. I mean, that's just a great technical achievement. What's important is that the movie has something to offer and to present something worth <laughs> worth processing. So, you know, and I just mentioned about the, what did I just say, the search for truth or something in that era, and it's interesting that both these movies deal with dishonesty on a very strong level and in quite different ways, I realised. I was thinking about it last night. I, the, my, the total of my preparation for this was to think about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that I mean that was one thing that that that, that uh, bound these two together when you'd mentioned that those were your selections. Yeah, yeah. How, how how the two movies handle truth and what what they're looking at with that, and they're very they're quite different in what they're looking at because obviously the the Rashomon is to, is dealing with people's sort of uh, narcissism in a way, and their. Uh, their propensity for lying and just making themselves look good. And uh, it, it's quite hilarious in the end. I mean, the whole final scene, as it's told by, is it the woodcutter, I think? Yes, yes, you're correct, yes. Back at the temple, tells what he saw through the bushes and it's so hilarious. I mean, it's just like watching a, a slapstick comedy, really. <laughs> so, Which is a relief in a way because otherwise it would be really disgusting if it was just all relentlessly tawdry and just total lies, it's it's really a lot of what they've constructed around their lying is because what really took place was so embarrassing. <laughs> and um, so that's really interesting. But obviously Touch of Evil deals with that stuff on a very different level and on the choices that people are making about trying to find justice and so forth and but and the you know the great irony of the movie obviously is that both both principal characters are, are trying to do the right thing that's the ultimate irony we spend a lot of the movie thinking that uh, Orson Welles's character is just a bent cop who's you know should be brought down and all this sort of stuff by by the book uh, lawyer Charlton Heston's lawyer and in fact, um, he ends up being right. So the whole dilemma is thrown on its head. You know, was actually was the Mexican lawyer actually obstructing the course of the right thing being done by playing it so strictly by the book? It's a, it's a great uh, it's a great moral dilemma that's thrown up in that movie. I kind of love that. I do too. Well, let's back up for just a hair. This is this is kind of a film ca- classic sort of film noir. Um, Charlton Heston, Janet Lee, Orson Welles, uh, I think get top billing in this. But um, why don't you just give us a quick synopsis for anyone that is unfamiliar that's listening, that's interested. Um, if you could just give us a, a quick uh, rundown of the, of the plot, that would be great. Oh, Jesus. Honestly, I... I haven't seen, I haven't watched the film in years, so um, I just... I've, it can be quite general. <laughs> it'll have to be. Um, so 
well, obviously, there's the, the a car bomb goes off at a, a Mexican US border town, uh, killing uh, someone. I can't remember who it kills. Some someone important. I can't remember. Someone vaguely important. So uh, Orson Welles' character, the US border police guy, plants some evidence on the main suspect to incriminate him so that he can arrest him and put him away. And uh, I think it's Vargas, the Charlton Heston, the Mexican lawyer who's on the other side of the border, spends his time trying to do everything the correct way and show up uh, Orson Welles' cop for being corrupt and all and protect the rights of these people who are being uh, improperly accused of this stuff. And so it's, it's the story just unfolds that way basically it's like a corruption against uh, a corruption against non-corruption inside the system story i suppose it also has uh, echoes of who's in power who's like the it's good that the bank cops from the us and the, and the vigilant like the the vigilant moralistic lawyer is from mexico and all this is under that that really the bank cop from the US has more power and sway and so forth and is holding this Mexican guy for, for having done it. And in the end, of course, it turns out that it was him and he was just a very good cop and understood that this guy was guilty as hell and just had to find a way to put him away. But, of course, it destroys his whole career. He ends up uh, being exposed for for his corrupt police practices and, uh, you know, going down and all the rest of it. But, but um, Charlton Heston's lawyer also kind of... Uh, it, it all goes badly for him too, if I remember rightly. He doesn't come out of it well and realises that his wife gets all caught up in it and kidnappings and, oh, it's really... Anyway, that's that's probably far too long. That's not a pricey. That's like a... <laughs> no, I think that was well played. That, that was good. That was very good. <laughs> um well, um, you mentioned uh, earlier. Uh, I wanted to talk quickly about uh, about Kurosawa, who directed Rashomon, um, who's a you know iconic Japanese director, um, probably really well known, for, I guess, for like Seven Samurai and Hidden Fortress and Ron. He's actually you know lots of um, lots lots of West uh, American Western films have been based on um, his movies. What uh, you said this uh, Rashomon wasn't your your favorite piece of his work, um, and I know you don't like favorites, but what what were, what were some others of, of his that speak to you? Well, yeah, no, I do. I mean, Rashomon is one of my favorites. I, mean, I, I suppose, in a way, here I've chosen my two favorite directors. So, um, and then just chosen a film by them that makes a good double feature that's different enough from one another, not two and a half hours long, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. So the, um, you know, obviously Hidden, I think probably Hidden Fortress and The Seven Samurai would be favourites, but Rashomon's a favourite as well. So it's certainly in, in there in his best films. So that's, that's a really hard choice, you know, when it comes to Kurosawa because he's probably, I mean, he's just amazing. I mean, anyone who hasn't seen his films should really just, just try and see some of them because they're amazing. They really are, yeah. I mean, he's an he's an incredible director. Well, let's let's talk Rashomon a little bit. I mean, there, there's there. I think we I think we mentioned a lot of the thematic uh, qualities of that movie, but uh, um, you know, in essence, it's 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 a it's about an event that that takes place in the woods between three people, and uh, the 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 film is kind of split up by all of their recollections or accounts of that 
of that happening. Yeah, they they're they're called before the court to explain why why the samurai character in the uh, is is being killed. Haven't they? Yes. Right, there was yeah. a murder. Exactly, yes. one of them's ended up dead, and they have they're called before the court to explain what happened. And the stories that they give are entirely in total conflict with one another. And uh, I think oddly, the the samurai's story is told by a, a spirit. It's through a spirit medium, that's pretty bizarre. Yeah, medium. Yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> so, what. That's one of my favorite parts of the whole movie. It's, frankly, it's very, very <laughs> unusual. But then, in the end, as I alluded to earlier, the woodcutter ends up telling what he saw happen between the three people from the bushes in in the forest, and um, or from concealed somewhere in the forest, and that's quite hilarious. And we get yeah. So anyway, I mean, obviously, I suppose in in structuring the story you'd have to begin with what really happened right if you're writing i'm thought about this yesterday i thought oh, you'd have to begin sure. with this kind and of work backwards what really took yeah. place between them, and then work backwards and say what's that person going to say about what happened to cover themselves and make themselves look not so appalling so it's a, a fantastic um uh, it's a fantastic story it's just, uh, quite often cited in other Stories, I suppose, you know, what's it called, the Rashomon effect yes. or something. And I know Orson Welles actually used to refer to Rashomon quite a lot. Um, oh, is that right? I didn't know that. Yeah, I've seen a couple of things where he's referring to Rashomon and talking about it. Um, he obviously really loved it because Welles was very obsessed with truth-telling and Ver- different versions of things depending on one's perspective. I mean, just look at Citizen Kane to begin with, I guess. It's... So it's um, which came which came a long way before Rashomon, obviously. But he, it's just the type of story that he's really interested in, and so it's not surprising that he loved that film. And uh, he, I've seen interviews where he's citing it and discussing aspects of it, even in relation to some of his own later work. I can't even remember what that is. I suppose um, it wouldn't be F for fake, but that's very relevant. But it'd be something else of his later on. But uh, anyway, that's uh, just as an aside there that I know that Orson Welles was very taken with with Rashomon. But the whole, you know, that's it's just a very uh, it's ultimately a very entertaining film because the final story, when when you actually see the final story, it's really hilarious and and kind of excruciating and. It's almost like watching an episode of, um, of uh, you know, uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm or something. <laughs> That's an interesting take. Yeah, I, I, I agree because, well, like, yeah, because you're right because uh, the, I mean, for anyone that hasn't seen it, um, leading up to this, uh, all of the accounts of what happens in the woods there is, is quite dark and violent and... Um, yeah, you're not you're not really sure, or you're under the impression that something, you know, uh, happened that 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 ultimately did not. That it was kind of almost slapstick. So yeah, you're, you're right. It's a, it's 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 a really interesting. Well, twist. you certainly, I think you you certainly don't expect it to end no. up being <laughs> so pathetic and and embarrassing. What actually happened? So it 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 has that effect of being you know unredeemable and. Complete, completely excruciating to watch, which is a bit like Curb Your Own Enthusiasm and the unredeemable fact is actually very like Seinfeld. Yeah, yeah. Nothing is ever, <laughs> nothing in the show is ever redeemable. <laughs> it's like, uh, but it's, 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 it ends up being a very entertaining film and uh, but also leaves you with a very, 
Um, it is quite dark as well. It's very, very black humour. But then I, I, I love black humour. So I find Touch of Evil to be quite full of black humour too, actually, in a very different way than Rashomon. But it, it has a lot of humour in the film, in the way it's shot in... in um, in Orson Welles's character and the way he's depicted is he's, he's, he's so... <laughs> it's like a, this cartoon villain cop and it's quite quite hilarious too, really, in some ways. Oh, yeah, he's definitely a caricature of that sort of archetype, for sure. And I love the, I, I love the fact that you just linked Larry David with Kurosawa. That's that's uh, that's a, well, I mean, a very it's, interesting... It's <laughs> a very interesting observation. Not... not, not 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 making a close link there, just just in terms of a thread of the, <laughs> no, the I, type I, of yeah, no, I love that <laughs> the, the type of the type of uh, activity that's going on there that the, the one's response to the activity that's happening. Anyway, no, I happen to agree. That's really good. So uh, I don't know I, anything else I'd like to say about those two films and the era they come from. I suppose it's um, or era for your listeners. It's uh, I suppose this is international is just that, as I sort of alluded to that era, the post-war era, which is very, you know, of filmmaking, which the, both these films are connected with in a way. Um, I, I can't imagine Rashomon, you know, it, it's so um, it's sort of shameful what takes place and everything. I can't imagine that. That's why I can't imagine that being made at some other time in Japan, but it really relates to their post-war shame as well of of what happened to them and the situation they were in, as so many films from Japan did during that period, trying to cope with the disgrace and humiliation and shame that was being thrust upon them uh, in the post-war years. Um, it, so it's really interesting to reflect on what Rashomon means in that context, although it doesn't belong purely in that context, obviously, and um, just just the whole thrust of movies during that era, which, as I said earlier, was really trying to find uh, responses to the horrors that had happened. And uh, I don't know that that, um, that Touch of Evil is really doing that specifically, but it comes in that whole period when those questions were allowed to be addressed and you could go into risky areas of of motivations and moral positions because uh, everyone was trying to process what had taken place under, with the Nazis and with Japan and with the whole with the whole Second World War thing and No, I think that's very insightful. I think I think providing that sort of historical context around this period of, of filmmaking is is actually really important and 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 also you'd mentioned earlier you know the, these types of films didn't really exist prior to in the decades prior it was it was it was it was just sheer enter- entertainment value for the most part, and um, these it was these much, much more, more darker. geared that way. Yeah, it was yeah. geared much more in that direction. Maybe not so much out of Germany, but out of most right. places. Out of most right. places, they were making films that were, uh, you know, they were more geared to entertainment. Definitely, yeah. And the yeah, interesting no, I think these thing are reflections there, of the times. There's an interesting thing with the with that comes out of the post war post World War Two thing as well, just with. Um, looking at what uh, mankind's needs are and so forth and looking at the corruption that's led to it and the, the, the kind of political ideas that had led to the problems that happened in the Second World War and then the, the whole McCarthy 
communist witch hunt in America and the whole anti-communist thing that suddenly rises up in the early 50s is also connected with all of this. So, you know, you get a lot of the movies being made in the late 40s, early 50s in America, some of them were quite radical. Uh, think of people like Jules Dessin who ended up on the, you know, blacklisted and all that stuff. And the messages in his films are really quite uh, strong and anti uh, you know, anti the powerful element in in the system and their exploitative actions and so forth. So um, you can you can see well, well, he probably was a communist. You know, I think he was in the Communist Party, and a lot of a lot of people were at that time. But how the kinds of movies they were making and the, the messages aren't overtly communist by a long shot. They're actually just dealing with aspects of corruption and uh, being on the side of um, the oppressed in the community and so forth. So it's uh, they're amazing films to watch again now. I don't know. I'm sure they're easily... I'm sure that you can get these films in America. These are like Thieves Highway and Brute Force and um, that, kind of, that kind of thing coming through as well. I mean, that's the, the kind of extreme end of what was happening with... with um, uh, the messages in films like that. It's a quite a really strong undercurrent of a political message about um, the structure of society coming through. No, I, I absolutely, I can, I can absolutely uh, back that um, sentiment in terms of the, the overall weight of, 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 of what those films were kind of bringing to the table. Thank you so much for these picks, man. I, I really like I like the 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 era, and obviously the directors are, are you know insanely wonderful, and um, the, the 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 connectivity uh, between these two films is really nice. So thank you. There's an odd connectivity. There's an odd connectivity there, and I think it would make a fantastic uh, evening at the cinema. <laughs> I stand by it too, and thank you for uh, taking into account uh, the runtime as well. It's very kind of you. Oh, absolutely. You don't want to, uh, as uh, I think Orson said, you know, I don't want to sit in a cinema for two hours. It's uncomfortable. <laughs> well, thanks again for your time, man. I've been, like I said, I've been a really huge fan of your work for for many, many, many years, and uh, you know, it's been really nice to connect and talk with you and and to talk films a little bit. Yeah, 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 yeah. Thank you. Stay safe. I hope hope you and your family stay well. You too. All right, man. So that's our show. I want to once again thank Mick Harvey for coming on and uh, discussing films. Once again, his recommendation for a double feature was Touch of Evil uh, by Orson Welles, along with Rashomon by Akira Kurosawa. A uh, really phenomenal double feature, and um, I really appreciate his insight on these two movies and the era in which they were constructed as well. Uh, stay up to speed with all things Mick Harvey at mickharvey.com and check out uh, all of his artistic endeavors spanning from uh, music to film and and beyond. And stay up to speed with all things Contiki Podcast at Contiki Podcast on Instagram and backslash Contiki Podcast on Facebook. We uh, will post uh, new episodes there along with uh, some animations and additional double feature film recommendations and fun stuff. Uh, make sure and drop me a line if you dig the show and uh, rate and review it wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Um, really grateful to uh, have been spending the better part of 
of this year with with you guys and doing this project. It's been really fun and meaningful, and um, I am really appreciative for all the listeners and and feedback. So that's it for this week. Talk to you soon. Be sensible out there. Mask up. There's some optimism and hope for a brighter future in this country. Let's all uh, rally around this opportunity to to do some good and to uh, make some really, really much-needed changes and uh, continue to watch some cool flicks. Until next time, see ya.